What a truth to be able to sing with all of our hearts. Great anthem and testimony of the gospel at work in our hearts, our lives, trust even in our midst. All right, Romans chapter 9. We are back into Romans. We've had a little, uh, a little hiatus uh, over the last uh, five or six weeks, whatever it has been, but trust our, uh, our focus there on discipleship was encouraging. Our growth groups are off to a great start this fall. Um, we uh, just uh, so in, enjoying them. Uh, if you have not yet been able to participate, uh, you can just jump right in, all right? This is not a, a missed it, now I'm out for a while. Um, the groups are going to continue right on through May, so, uh, so just jump in, all right, and, uh, and enjoy it and be encouraged. We'll be looking this coming Wednesday night in the first Samuel chapter 2, so if you're like, well, I don't know where to, just be in first Samuel 2, all right, you'll be fine. And uh, we, we will have a wonderful, wonderful time uh, together uh, studying God's Word. But this morning, let's open God's Word. Let's look together as we continue this, this study. Uh, this is an inspired letter. It's an epistle. It's a Pauline epistle. The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, used him to write this um, to the church that had been gathered at Rome, a group of people he had not yet met, a place he had not yet been. But we know, of course, he will end up there. He will ultimately be martyred there for his faith. But in the late, probably 50s AD, 57, 58 AD, he's heard much of what is going on, how the gospel has already been advanced uh, to the capital of the empire. And it's not just being talked about, that people aren't just an awareness of it, but it is being received. What a, what a testimony. We know ultimately that he will write that there are even those of Caesar's household who would greet the saints. You know, I know a lot of times in the world and the way in which it is, the world in which we live, the society that surrounds us, it is very easy for us maybe to, to get quite discouraged and maybe despondent, may, maybe even if, if we were really honest and transparent in the darkest of moments, maybe even a tad bit hope, uh, hopeless about, you know, could, could God even continue to, to work as bad as things are? Reality is, God is always at work. And the answer is yes, emphatically yes. Because it is the power of the gospel that breaks the chains of sin that holds so many in slavery. And it's only the power of the gospel. Why is it this morning that you, you personally, not you corporately. Why is it that, that you personally this morning could sing the truths that we just sang together and it just so moves your heart? Because the gospel is at work in your heart. Why is it that we can sing that song and all of a sudden it transitions and we sing this Sunday school song that says, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. 
There's nothing my God cannot do. And he grabs hold of it. I never got emotional as a junior in Sunday school singing that song. Gospel hadn't worked in my heart yet. And now it has. And now you sing, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. And I've got, you know, 50 plus years of life experience that goes, oh, yeah, he is. And I don't have time to tell you all the ways that he has proven that, right? It's the power of the gospel that changes people's lives. And so Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens this letter. And he writes to the believers that are gathering even in those days in the capital in Rome, knowing it is a diverse group, just like we are. People from all over the empire. Redeemed Jews and Gentiles alike. Coming together, worshiping Jesus Christ. And as he kind of shifts gears a little, this chapter 9 is a transitional point in the letter. He says in Romans 9 verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. It's an interesting way to start a paragraph, isn't it? Kind of gets you. Like, oh, wait a minute. What's he getting ready to say? (laughs) I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at these five verses. And really what we see contained in here, just in this little snapshot as it were. It's obviously an introductory paragraph to what he is now going to turn his attention to, the subject matter And he lays out in great clarity, even as succinct as it is, his great burden and the great blessings that are Israel's. One aspect we have is great burden, Paul's burden for his kinsmen in the flesh, as he said, his, his people. And then he turns and he reminds them, do you even fathom everything God has done for you And why he has done that for you. That's really what he's getting at. Just to catch us up real quick and let us kind of see where we are in the whole letter. Romans is uh, 
is a pretty substantial book. Uh, we have it divided as 16 chapters. Again, it was a letter. It was not originally divided into chapters and verses and such. But there's definitely a theme. It is very well organized. Uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit wrote it through Paul. But, but we have a great uh, organization here. And realize the truth is, whoever you read after theologians, um, you know, in commentaries and different studies, uh, study Bible if you, you have one uh, with you this morning or you have one at home that you use. Most of them are, gonna, are going to agree that the subject matter, the big idea, as we call it, of the book of Romans is God's righteousness. It's about God's righteousness. How far we are from it as carnal, fleshly, sinful people. How we can receive it. How it can be not only imparted but imputed to us. How we can be justified and ultimately then how we're supposed to live it. Dr. Ryrie, some years ago in his outline, and it's very nearly the same as Dr. MacArthur's, he, he just laid it out this way. Of course, there's introductory remarks in chapter 1, but chapter 1, 18 verses uh, through the, uh, the end of chapter 3 clearly state how righteousness is needed. How desperately man needs God's righteousness. How, how far away we are from being right with God. How desperately sinful. You know, we, we, and we did. When, when the time when we started this, we, we looked at chapter 1 and it paints a, a vivid picture of the sinfulness of man. And, and lest we as Christians get, you know, get all impressed with ourselves and look and go, yeah, right, those people. Then he turns it right back to us. He says, and you think you're all so good? <laughs> no, he, he helps us to realize that, that we all desperately need God's righteousness. And, and then, praise the Lord, in, in chapter 3, verse 21, he, he shifts. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, righteousness can be imputed. He talks about justification. He talks about salvation. In chapter 6, he talks about righteousness imparted and, and how through the working of the Holy Spirit, the miracle that only God can do. In, in chapter 6, he talks about principles of sanctification and then chapter 7, the practice of it. And, and then we looked at the, in chapter 8, most recently, the power of sanctification at work in our lives. And, and of course, he ends with that amazing doxology. You know, that question answer, who, who can separate us from the love of God? Of course, the answer comes back, nothing. Nothing. And all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And now in chapter 9, that righteousness that has been declared, that is offered, that can be imparted, it's now going to, to be vindicated before the nation of Israel. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, John, Dr. John MacArthur says it's, it's Israel's reception of God's righteousness. Because what he's going to do is he's going to walk them through. He's, he's going to shift the focus. He's going to talk about their past election in this chapter. He, he's going to talk about how presently in that time and, and even in this day they have rejected Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. But in chapter 11, he gives hope because 
there is a pending day of salvation. It is coming. It is ahead. And then he'll turn the focus back very practically in chapters 12 through the end of the book. And, and he'll talk about how that righteousness then is to be practiced in our daily lives. And so MacArthur kind of outlines it the same way. He says condemnation, justification, sanctification, restoration, and then application. The letter is written to the church. And in the church are both Jews and Gentiles. That's not just an assumption, that's a statement of fact. Because when you get to chapter 16, there's a long list of names, which when we get to that point, it's kind of interesting to go through them. And you'll notice in that list of names, there are Jews and Gentiles that he greets, that he addresses. But because of the divisive influence and the teaching of a group that has risen and is rising to prominence in the early church, a group that has become known now as the Judaizers, Paul was constantly having to deal with, with this tension that existed in the church. As the gospel is trying to advance and break through all of the, the cultural stuff and the religious stuff, and we still deal with that, right? Right? And the gospel is trying to break through all that. Paul wrote an entire book. We have it as Galatians to a whole region addressing that issue. You see, for centuries the Jews have been told that they were oh so special. God's chosen people. And they are. There is, there is no rejecting that. God has a very special relationship with Israel. It's not going to change. But then along comes the gospel. And because Israel had rejected Christ as the Messiah, had reject, rejected Jesus as Christ, is really the better way to say it. The gospel is now open to the Gentiles. You see, in the law, God had provided a way for a Gentile to be able to come in and worship under Jewish law. There was a process where that could happen, but even in the temple, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, as, as it was divided out, there, there were these separate courts. And, and the court of the Gentiles was not so close in proximity to the temple as was the other court. That tension and everything still existed and certainly it was in the church. And, and what Paul is dealing with and what, what the, the apostles dealt with through the first century and the, and the church fathers through the, the subsequent centuries and even here we are today. And it's terrible that such, such spiritual pride and arrogance resides in our hearts. At the beginning, it was Jews and Gentiles. Now it's Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopals and yada, yada, yada. You know there's more than Baptists in heaven, right? Just want that on the record. That's evidence of our sinful hearts. Our spiritual pride that we, that we still battle. 
In every generation, in every time period, it's manifested itself in different ways. You know, what rites are observed and how they're observed and so on and so forth. And I mean, it's just gotten ridiculous. You know, now it's about like what you wear to church and what you don't and, and what music you use and what all the stuff. Do you preach in a tie or not? Romans 9, 10, 11 has been viewed through the years, and I, and I think I can say this with confidence, in modern history, as, mu more, as much or more than anything, is it viewed as, as this really difficult group of verses and passages that, that we just really struggle with. But I'll tell you what I told you when we started this whole thing. Paul's writing to a group of baby Christians. And he didn't write this letter to confuse them. To divide them. To confound them. He wrote it to encourage and to, to grow them. And to, to, to help them be more secure in their faith. And so let us not be all worried about, oh my goodness, what do Romans 9, 10, and 11 say? You know what it says? Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. But he's going to turn the spotlight on them and he's going to confront the Israelites very specifically. And Paul was the guy to do it. You know, when Paul talks about it in Galatians and he talks about his heritage, he he says and, and identifies himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. By education, he was a Pharisee and, and, and likely the upper crust. Been taught by Gamaliel, one of the premiers. So he had it. He had everything you needed to walk into a room and be the guy. And so he turns his attention, the Holy Spirit directs him to do this, to those present who are of Jewish descent. And this chapter here is a pivotal point in the letter. It's been very broad up to this point. But now he's going to get very, very specific. You see, he loves his people. He carries a tremendous burden for them. We're going to walk through these next three chapters. And, and honestly, I, I feel like it's, it's you know, that old thing of how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So we're going to just do it one bite at a time. The first bite is the, are these five verses. I was reminded afresh last night just how desperate is the loneliness and the angst that is being experienced by people all around us. Paul knew this too. And he carried a tremendous burden for his kinsmen. You know, we look at, at what goes on in our world, and our society, we hear it on the news, we're, oh my goodness, you know, are they going to get the debt thing figured out? They did, whatever. But it's just one thing after another after another. I 
don't know about you, but I watch the news until I get the weather, and even that's, of course, you know. But at least it puts it in the ballpark. But all the other stuff, I just don't need that. <laughs> but can you imagine if that's how we feel, if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you look at that and you're just like, I feel like some days I'm drowning. If that's how you feel, can you imagine living like that without Jesus? Without the Holy Spirit in your life? Is it any wonder that every tragic choice and habit and avenue that people can make, all those numbers are just climbing? Is it any wonder? Because they're trying to live it under their own power, their own wisdom. And you see, the gospel says there's another way, there's hope. Why in the world can we come together? Yeah, it's a beautiful day. It wasn't such, so beautiful last Sunday. It was pouring down rain, but we still came together and we, we just lifted our voices in song and rejoicing and praise to God. Why can we do that? After all the stuff we've been through this week and maybe you've experienced and yet you, we come together on Sunday morning and we are refreshed and we're encouraged and, and we're challenged and we, we're leaving like, okay. It's all proof to the power of the gospel at work in your life. If you're here this morning and you're like, this is really strange. This is really unique. We don't have a corner on the market. <laughs> the Bible says, for all have sinned. That's every one of us. We're all sinners. Look around. You're seated next to a sinner. You're surrounded by them. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But we also know that by grace you're saved. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. There's no works that can be done. Because then we would be like, look what I did. Not of works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And so we come together at a time like this on a Sunday morning, and we sing with all of our hearts, and we, we greet one another, and, and we leave refreshed and encouraged because it's the gospel at work. It's fruit and proof of it. And Paul here is expressing his burden for his kinsmen. And you see, there was that tension. That was already existed, and he just hits it head on. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I know some of you wonder, is this really true? Could this really be? He's just hitting it. And he says, it is, absolutely. And then he just goes even farther. He says, I'm not lying. And he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is grieved in his spirit because of the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders. He has said here, he says it over, he says it in verse 1, he says it again down in uh, verse, uh, verse 3, he says it again in verse 5, 
that word Christ, that's like in our, our vernacular, you know. And again, obviously, we've it, the term Christian, a, a copy of Christ, a, a miniature of Christ. Let's just kind of become, oh, yeah, well, I mean, Christian. When the first century Jew heard the word Christ, Christos, that was the Greek word for Messiah. That hit their ear different than it might hit ours. But Paul just keeps hammering on that. Because that was key. And the Jews as a nation, the Jewish leaders, they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. That was the problem. He too had been in that place. We don't have anything other than than our, our best guess. But if you look at the timeline of Paul's life, then his education with Gamaliel, and we know from Acts that Gamaliel's present in Jerusalem in the very earliest formation of the New Testament church. It is highly likely Paul's in Jerusalem around the time of the crucifixion and resurrection. Paul is very much aware of the ministry of this guy called Jesus. And he too had rejected him. Until, right? Until one day. And he is just so mad. He is so irate about what's going on with this new group of people. That he goes and he gets orders to just go and he can just imprison anybody he wants. And so he heads north to Damascus. God interrupts his trip. God confronts him in his sin and his unbelief. And in that moment, he confesses with his heart that Jesus is Christ. And it changes everything. You see, that's what really does the work. He had been educated. He knew. He knew the law forwards and backwards. It was all up here. But when he confesses that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he's Christ, he's the son of the living God. He did exactly what God had promised in coming and paid the penalty and and price for my sin. It changed him. And he carries this immense burden for his brothers and sisters of, of Jewish descent. His kinsmen after the flesh as he says it there. And through his teaching, Paul just keeps knocking out the two big pillars of Judaism. And that is their physical descent from Abraham. And then all of the legalistic works of righteousness and keeping the law. And he just keeps kicking those things out like that's not going to cut it. And so he says, I say a truth in Christ. And in saying that, it wasn't just like a phrase. In this culture, and literally the way he says it, it is, it is as though he's standing in a courtroom and he knows his audience are questioning and doubting. And so he calls to the witness stand, Jesus Christ. You know, kind of sometimes people will say that, as God is my witness. Literally what you're saying is if, if we were on trial, if I could get God to leave heaven, come down, walk in this courtroom and sit there on the witness stand... All of it, you'd believe that. 
that's what Paul is doing here. He is in, 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 including here and calling upon Jesus as his witness. Like, okay, he's serious. You know, to make an oath before God, that was a big deal. It still is and should be a big deal. But I mean, again, especially in this culture and to the Jewish year, that was a big deal. But not only is he saying, I'm making an oath before God, but he's saying, I'm telling you right now, it would be validated by God. He says, I'm not lying. And as we read on here, I think what he's, what he's saying there, when you look at, at the full package, which we'll get to here, here in just a second, Paul's not going to resort to empty flattering just to win an audience with the Jews. He, he's not going to just be like, oh, you guys are serious. Da, da, da. He says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. He is very careful to keep a clear conscience before God about what he's going to say here. Oh, that we would be. Oh, that we would be so careful in how we live and what we say. Paul here calls on irrefutable witnesses, two-thirds of the Trinity, to back up his claim. you've ever been in court if you've ever had to find yourself in a place where you were either called as a witness or in need of witnesses you want good ones right you want witnesses that when they walk into court people are kind of impressed by them by their character by you know what is known of them because that helps you out right Paul calls two-thirds of the trinity to the witness stand as it were He says, my burden for you is so great. He says, great sorrow, increasing anguish, literally mega sorrow. It's the same, it was the same expression. We'll study eventually when we get there in 1 Samuel 15, when Samuel was grieved over, the, over Saul. Remember when God turned his back on Saul, the first king of Israel? The Bible says Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. It was that. I mean, he is heartbroken. He, he just is, is a wreck. Just as Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet for the tears he shed over Israel, that's what Saul is invoking here, that same phrase, that same description. And and to just express how great of sorrow, how unceasingly uh, he is anguished in his heart, verse 3 ought to just blow your mind. I, I will tell you, I'm not sure I could, I could have said this. I'm not sure I would today say this. Because look what he said. He says, if I could do it, I could wish, if I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Oh, my word. Do you know what he just said? 
he literally just told the Jewish recipients of this letter, if I could give back my salvation and spend eternity in hell so that you would believe it, I'd do it. That's what he said. My soul would be accursed, literally anathema, to eternally be separated from God. I can tell by some of your expressions that it's like hitting you for the first time. I've read chapter 9. I never. That's what he says. He says, I'd go and spend eternity in hell if I could, if that would mean that you would believe and accept Jesus as Christ. That's his burden. What do you say to that? I mean, that just, it's it's un almost unbelievable, unfathomable. But his heart is so moved he's trying to impact them any way that he can think and it's not it's not manipulation. It, it's statement of fact again, this is inspired. So the Holy Spirit was like, go there. go ahead. The reality is we look around at our world and we wonder, I think, sometimes, why don't more people get it? Why don't more people understand this and accept this? And I think sometimes the answer has to come back because we're, as believers, as Christians, we're not as serious about it as we probably should be. And Paul here is evidencing this is... A big deal. This is how big of a deal. This is how serious I am about you hearing it and accepting it. Somebody said evangelism has little effect if the evangelist has little love for the lost. Just how big is your burden? John Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. And he did. Henry Martin said, oh, that I were a flame of fire in the hand of God to spread the gospel. David Brainerd, who was born just down the road from here, prayed that he would burn out for God, and he did, and he died before 30 years of age. Evangelism has little effect if the evangelist has little love. The lost. Paul states in unmistakable terms this tremendous burden that he carried for his kinsmen and the Israelites. Not only does Paul impress upon the Jews their need of Christ, but he also goes to these great lengths to, to remind them of the amazing blessings that they enjoy as God's chosen people. And the problem was they had just like taken it and just were like gluttons about it. And we're all impressed with themselves because of it. 
And he says, do you not understand why God gave you these blessings? And he's going to list seven. I'm going to fly through them, okay? He's going to list these seven blessings. And, and again, when he lists them off, they hit the Jewish ear different. But it's really interesting because he's going to use words that he's already talked about in the first part of this letter that have some of them, some of these ideas are, are already being carried over into the church and into Christians, for Christians. But these blessings should have drawn each Jewish heart into this deep, intimate relationship with their Messiah. And, and yet because of their own sinfulness and their pride, they just pushed back. But notice here quickly what these blessings are. He starts with adoption. Israel was the nation God had made his own. And they still are. It's not been, not been annulled. <laughs> it's not been rejected. The first blessing is that, that God gave to them was this familial relationship with Jehovah. I mean, when you read back in the covenant with Abraham in, you know, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and stuff like that in Genesis 15, why not one of those other nations? Hittites, Hivites, you know, yada, yada, all the ites. Why the Israelites? Because God's sovereign. And that's what he chose to do. And he's God. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, God said, tell, tell Pharaoh this, Israel's my son, even my firstborn. It's like a, you know, like when we type now, when we text now, when we put like multiple exclamation points, I'm like really bad at that, I do that. I'm not so much like the all caps person, but I am the exclamation po person, point person. But that's kind of what God did. He's my son, he's my firstborn, exclamation point, exclamation point. The prophet Isaiah reminds them, he says, God says, this people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. That's why God did this. That's why God chose them. That's God in God's intention for them. Does that sound familiar to what we see in the New Testament? They're parallel tracks. They don't intersect. God has a plan and blessings for Israel. God has a plan and blessing for the church. And they're running on parallel tracks. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 10, right? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the same thought. That they would show forth my praise. He then goes on, he says, not only the blessing of adoption, but the blessing of glory. Literally, the presence of God visibly revealed to the children of God, of children of Israel, the Shekinah glory. They had seen this physically manifested. In Exodus 13, God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. His physical presence and glory. Moses goes up into the mountain in Exodus 24, right? And he gets the law and, and the glory of God descends on the mountain. And God says, don't come near the mountain, don't touch the mountain. 
Moses comes down and he says, we've got to build a tabernacle. God wants a, a place to reside among us. They fashion it. They, they weave the fabric. They, they build the altar. They do all the stuff. And in Exodus 40, they dedicate the tabernacle. And God's glory literally comes down and fills the place. And we don't have time to look at it this morning. But I would implore you to look at it later on this week. Just read 2 Chronicles 6 and into chapter 7. As Saul, or excuse me, as Solomon dedicates the temple. The temple finally gets built in Jerusalem. They had a tabernacle, a tent, a, a makeshift place for so long, but Solomon finally gets to build it. And on that day when they dedicate the temple, 2 Chronicles 6, whoa. And the glory of God comes and fills the place. They'd seen it over and over again. And then, in the fullness of time, God took on flesh. And as was read already for us this morning, and he was the fullness and the glory of God here on earth. And he walked and talked among us. And Paul is saying, you've seen this. He talks of the covenant. We know of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. And of course, Jeremiah talked of it and Jesus introduced it in Luke 22, the new covenant. They'd been given the law. We know the Ten Commandments. They're listed again in, in Deuteronomy 5 to the next generation. They've been passed down one to another to another. Now God says, and it's written on your heart. God says, God gave you the law. God gave you all of these things. He gave you worship it to him. In the tabernacle, in the temple. He made so many promises. Literally hundreds of promises to Israel. And they're all being fulfilled or have been fulfilled. So many of the Messianic Psalms, Dr. Taylor did such a wonderful job last week taking us through Psalm 22, one of those wonderful Messianic Psalms. All of that goes back and validates in the Jewish mind and heart, Jesus is Messiah. And then the thing they were really all impressed about and excited about, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's a reason that Matthew in his gospel, in Matthew 1, he lists 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. Left no doubt. And as I said, these parallels that, that we've already seen, many of them in the study of this book of Romans. Romans 8, the passage right in front of us. He's already told New Testament Christians, you've been adopted, you can cry out, Abba, Father. Just one after another after another. So there are differences, yes, but there are so many similarities. Let God worry about how he's going to work all that out. 
But Paul here is saying to them, brothers, literal brothers, would you not believe this? He is begging them. I'll spend eternity in hell if you'll believe it. That's what he's saying. If it were possible. So we look at this and, and we are confronted, I think, with the obvious question. How's your heart this morning? What kind of burden do you have for the lost around you? I mean, how many of us are kind of like Peter on that day, you know, Mount of Transfiguration. He said, let's just build three tabernacles and stay right here. I'm good. Or maybe like an Andrew that every time we see him, he's bringing somebody else to Jesus. You understand, whatever survey you want to look at, people come to church, people come to Jesus. They're not the same thing, I'm just saying. People are introduced to Christ by a friend. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly. Somebody, some friend has said, you know what, I've got a big burden for you. I want to introduce you to Jesus. I want to, I want to tell you about him. Can somebody be walking by and hear beautiful music coming out of a church window and wander in and, and accept Christ's Savior? Yes, that happens very rarely. But most of the people, their testimony is, I heard about Jesus from a friend. And Paul is saying, I'm your brother. I'm your kinsman. I want to tell you about Jesus. So what is the extent of your burden for those who are lost outside of the family of God? I mean, could, could, could you, like Paul, call Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be witnesses on your behalf? Would you be willing to go so far as to renounce your salvation if that were even possible? Are you, as we, as we are saying this year, are you re really, really not ashamed? Do you realize the extent of the blessings God has given to us? Here's the thing. You can't become an Israelite. But you can become a Christian. It's impossible to become an Israelite. We can't change our genetics. We can't change the family that we were born into. But the gospel opened up the door wide. And Paul here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, is validating what he said in chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the power of Christ, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. He says, I'm not ashamed. Will you not accept it? Father, we thank you.
for the truth and the power that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. We are surrounded by depressing and discouraging news. 24 hours a day. Father, thank you for these few moments that we've been able to come together here this morning and hear the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. He did come. He did die. He did raise again on the third day. And he is, even at this very moment, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for us. Oh, Father, we praise you and we thank you that we can, as we have already even done this morning, sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And so, Father, help us to be like Paul, not ashamed. May our burden be so great for those that we know, for those that we will meet. That we cannot help but tell them about Jesus and the good news that salvation is offered to all. Oh, Father, help us to be doers and not just hearers of your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior.